for so long, once I gave up the Scottish National Coach job, I really became known as Andy and Jamie's mum. I, I wasn't known as a coach, if you know what I mean. That I kind of lost my identity uh, as a coach. And I think that was one of the one of the, the toughest things for me to do was to walk away from that job. But at, at some point, you've got to believe in yourself. And I've always been one of these people. If something needs to be done, you get off your butt and you do it and you back yourself to do it. You don't wait for somebody else. You know what? I'm glad that it was difficult. And I'm glad that people pissed me off along the way because it actually, I've always been one of these people that if you tell me I can't do something, I'll, I really will go out of my way to, to prove you wrong. That is the formidable, gentle, unstoppable and overwhelmingly inspirational Judy Murray, who outside of my own family and friends is without doubt one of my favourite people on the planet. I know Judy a bit. We've done several events together. Judy always saying yes to helping us out when she could easily have passed. Commitments that usually involve her jumping on a plane to be with us for not just five minutes, but for as long, if not longer than is required. And she always really digs in and gets involved and, uh, you know, always over delivers. That, that's, that's her playbook. And her story, what a story. I'm so glad you're going to hear this today. A tale of resilience and tenaciousness that far outweighs even that of her two tennis-playing boys, Jamie and Andy, combined. From the darkest days back in 1996, as a moment of two on that terrible, awful day in Dunblane, when a crazed gunman went on the rampage at Jamie and Andy's school, to the unbridled joy of seeing both those sons become best in the world at what they do for a living on various tennis courts all over the world. Out of all our How To Wow podcast thus far, I think it's safe to say my conversation with Judy really epitomises what we hope to achieve when we set out on this podcast journey now over 30 episodes ago. So whatever you do, do not miss a moment of Judy Murray because she is coming to get you. But first, please listen up for this week's Not Paid For ad. This is a free ad gifted to someone who we here at How To Wow think deserves it and what's more, has absolutely no idea it's going to happen. This week, our big How To Wow worldwide free shout-out goes to The Kinder Co. That is K-I-N-D-A, one word, co Dot another word. Vegan Cheese Company, who are just off the charts awesome. When Tash and I decided to go 100% plant-based almost a year ago now, the one treat we missed more than any other was our Friday night cheese plate with our glass of red wine. Well, not anymore. After trying countless vegan cheeses and just not being able to find any with that deep hit of intense flavour and whatever else it is that cheese does to us to make us love it so much, we were introduced to Kinder Co at Christmas and have been smitten ever since. Their cheese is on another level. And allow me to recommend their ultimate cheese bundle to get you started. Here we go. This is what you get for 30 odd quid. Cranberry, garlic and herb, summer truffle, smoked chilli, farmhouse smoked and spirulina blue just go to their website and see for yourself what the heck i'm talking about you will not regret it once again this is a not paid for ad i have never met written to or corresponded in any way with anyone kinder i just love what they do and i want you to have the chance to do go to thekinderco.com to find out more that is the kinder k-i-n-d-a co or one word.com to find out more and now on with today's episode hey gang let's cue the conversation <laughs> yay it's judy murray judy 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 hey jude <laughs> you're all, you're always hyper i love it <laughs> oh so happy to talk to you judy oh nice to talk to you too in this 
what a what a drag this all is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, oh. it is. But we're hopefully going to experience growth. Um, you know, adversity creates growth. You know that better than anyone else. Right now, I need some personal advice straight off the bat, Judy. Here we go. I've just come off the air. We've done a three and a half hour breakfast show. Okay, and now we're up for about a two-hour-ish conversation. So basically, I'm in for a five-setter here. <laughs> you sure are. <laughs> I hope you've got snacks. Well, see, <laughs> this is what I want to talk to you about, right? I know we could get into your snack-sident issues later because uh, you have several snack-sidents <laughs> today, which I love. But, you know, if people are, you know, say they're, say they're, they're, they're you know, experience a little bit of a dip at work or, you know, they're going to something special like an interview or something or they want to be, you know, at their best. You know, if they're if we're flagging a bit, you know, over a couple of hours, you know, from, from what you know about tennis and nutrition, can you give us some just instant takeaways? Yeah, I mean, everybody's different. I think that's the first thing to say. So you have to find the things that are right for you. I mean, for for me, it, certainly through, through all this locking down, has definitely been to go outside and get fresh air and exercise and to drink a lot of water. I, mean, I am as guilty as anybody for struggling to pass the fridge and the wine rack. But really the things that make me feel good, I mean, during the summer it was going out on my bike and of course the roads are too wet and icy at the moment. So actually going out in the fresh air always gives me a, a massive lift. But you, you can't underestimate just the really simple things, fresh air, exercise and drink lots of water your body needs water to to survive and trying to eat a lot of fruit and veg as well i mean these things sound really obvious but we've kind of got away from that and gone into too much more into the comfort foods because things are tough for us at the moment and those are not necessarily things that give you uh, energy uh, you know for or a clear mind for for what it is that you want to do so judy you know um so when Andy or Jamie, they're in, they are in the middle of a five setter, you know, and they they want to sort of trick their body. They need to get you know, they're on fumes already, you know, and we see them eat a banana or they have some 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 water with some concoction in it. What might that be, and how much you know? What would you eat if you had to if you had you know for an instant high that you know on a, a more natural supply? Oh, for an for an instant high, um, things like uh, jelly babies, Haribo, um, digestive biscuits, peanuts. Yeah. I think if you want something, something instant, I mean, something like a banana takes actually quite a long time to digest. I never really understand why so many people have bananas <laughs> in long matches, but, but they do. Um, but I think the other thing is, you know, when you know you could be going in for a long haul, like a best of five set match, the, the reality is that you don't know. You could be out there for two hours, three hours, four hours, or five hours. You don't know how long the match is going to last. So you really have to fuel up in advance and that usually starts the night before you know what you eat the night before is something that's going to give you a lot of energy but not bloat you um and then obviously what you have in the morning before the match and then what you take with you for different stages of the match so you need to have things to nibble on because you can't sit out there and eat something large because that will bloat you slow you down so you do need the things that will give you the instant energy so you see a lot of players with these kind of little gel packs that you can kind of suck on um but, but uh, you know and powders that they put in their in their drips so you'll, you you might find players with three four or five different bottles with different powders for different stages 
of the of the match. It's all I mean, it's been huge advances in sports science and sports medicine over the years. So, you know, the top, top players will be able to afford to travel with an expert who can actually do that planning for them and 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 get it right for them. But you for you and me, it's like the box of chocolate fingers or the ketchup <laughs> chips or you know, whatever that might be. It's funny though, isn't it? Because you're so right, you know in elite sport, you know, it's the last 1% or even a hundredth of a percent that can be the difference between winning and losing. But of course, it's the opposite for us amateurs, yet we still buy into all those products. And it, it's, it's they're, they're, they're not useless, but they're not that, you know, they're not that important, are they? Not, they're not going to be effective in our normal life. You're right, it is for that kind of 1%. Um, you know, the, the little things that can make a big difference to what it is that you need your body to do to perform what you wanted to perform. So, you know, if it if it's me and I'm sitting on the sofa most of the day watching Netflix, <laughs> I don't need any of those gel packs. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Uh, can I talk about, about the boys' teams? You know, and just about any tennis players' teams, just it doesn't happen to be have to be your boys. But so what what members of a, you know, an absolute top tennis player, how many members typically would they have in their, their quote-unquote team and what would they all do? It's, that's, it's a good question because I think, you know, over the years, it was one of the things that we added people as we needed them. You can't, not everybody can afford to take a big team with them. And, you know, the better you get, the higher you go up the rankings and the more demands that there are on your time out with the training, you actually need a team that is the business team. So whether that's um, an agent or a PR person, it might not be full time. You might share them with with other players, but you need somebody to handle the the life and business side as well so that you're your training team, your coach, your fitness trainer, your physiotherapist, uh, your nutritionist, um, you know, so that they can get everything right for you on the court. So I think that in terms of traveling regularly to events, you probably find at the Grand Slams or the, the, the priority events for the players that they would take quite a big team with them because a Grand Slam lasts for two weeks of competition and you're usually there a week in advance to prepare for it. So you need people handling the, you know, the demands, the appearances that you need to make, the press interviews that you need to, to do. There's Because those are the things that can actually take up a lot of time and tire you out. Those are what I call the distraction things. And you need somebody to manage that side for you and then of course when it comes to the training you probably wouldn't take a nutritionist with you to the events but that would be somebody that you'd probably work with on a part-time basis uh, but the important thing is that on your physical team your coach fitness trainer physio uh, nutritionist psychologist even these are people who all need to work together everybody needs to understand each other's roles in order to be the most effective sports psychologists have become more and more important because as you said earlier it's that it's that kind of 1%, maybe even 5% that separates the ones at the very top from the rest of the pack. And it's usually what's between the ears. But if you if you uh, think about an individual sport like tennis or like golf, the athletes are responsible for all their own costs. So they have to employ their own teams. And so it's not just the fees for employing them, it's the travel expenses if you take them all around the world with you. So the, the travel, the hotels, the food, the phone calls, uh, etc. So it's a very expensive thing. And, and of course, you need to be earning a lot of money to be able to pay for a big team. So it's really only the ones at the very, very top who can afford to do that. And of course, if you've got kids you pro and you want your kids to come with you, you're often bringing a nanny stroke teacher 
um, along as well. So it's, um, I think the size of your team depends on what your income level is, and that is usually directly related to your ranking. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a, an upward spiral, isn't it, I suppose, because the more normal you can, or the more you can normalize your life on tour, the more chance you've got of winning. And so that all adds to that advantage. And it's not dissimilar in rock and roll. I know that having been on tour with you too and, um, and the Rolling Stones, you know, they literally sort of take their home environment with them. And it means they can, you know, how, how can, how can, you know, a bunch of septuagenarians, uh, not, not in U2's case, they're not quite there yet, but in the Rolling Stones case, go on the, t- on the road for 18 years because they don't go on the road like the rest of us would. That's the difference. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And I'm friendly with um, Brendan O'Carroll and his wife, Jenny, who are Mrs. Jones boys. And I have been to watch them. uh, We just happened, our paths happened to have collided a number of times when the big tennis tournaments have been in cities where they're actually playing at the same time. And I got to know Jenny well when I was doing Strictly. And so they've become great friends of mine and they have an astonishing um, back team who are almost entirely family, either on his side or her side. So whether that's, you know, production or script writing or costume, you know, whatever it is, and and they take the families with them as well. You know, uh, Brendan has three kids and, you know, um, their uh, spouses and the grandchildren and it's a real family business but he always says to me that's the only way I can make it work because I want I want to be around my family so you know everybody finds their way to make it work but again I'll go back to the the cost of it there's very few you mean you really have to be at the top of your game whether that's the entertainment business or the rock and roll or tennis or golf or whatever to be able to afford to do it the way that really can work with you to give you some kind of work-life balance yeah and once again community really you know trumps everything doesn't it because if you can share loss and if you can share support and if you can give alternative views which not necessarily may be best coming from the the person closest to you be that a blood relative or otherwise you know it can be all the more helpful and we learn this from the past don't we you know tribes and villages in the past before there was even such thing as towns they seem to be a lot more sustainable both from a personal and from a collective point of view yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, just what you said at the start of, of of that was, you know, having your friends and your family around who are, of course, they're emotionally attached to what you do. But if you think about your family are the ones who will tell you how it is, whereas often your team won't or might struggle to because you pay them <laughs> their you you are responsible for their you know their their livelihood um and i think you know that's where it is good to have the emotional support of of family um around and also you know with kids kids don't know whether you've won or lost they, they don't care if you've won or lost you're just mum or or dad or whatever and that's really important as well because that helps you to keep everything in perspective because you know in sport you win or you don't and you probably most people are going to lose more in their life than they that, than they win, and it's that whatever it is that helps you to keep going and keep it keep it real. You know that it's there's another match around the corner. You know whether when you've suffered a disappointment. So I think kids and dogs. Dogs is the other thing. I mean, Andy had his dogs, and he said, you know, I come in and I've had a bad defeat, and all the dog wants is my smelly socks out of my racket bag. Yeah. <laughs> 
doesn't care if I've won or lost, but it keeps you real. And I think that's really important. It's so important. You're so right. And, you know, it's been said before and it'll be said again because it's true that if you are looking for a high, if you're looking for your your highs and your fulfillment for life in whatever you do for a living, then good luck with that. You know, and it's all right short term and it's all right for, for, for the younger individuals. But once again, Roger Federer is, is cited with this a lot, that one of the reasons he's he's enjoying such a long reign at the top of, of the tennis world is because he has this amazingly solid family life, you know, and, and tennis is, is part of the joy, but it's not the only joy and it, ne- and it never has been. And you see other people come and go and, you know, and for a week or, or a year or for five years, you know, they can take on all comers, but they end up, you know, with this sort of sense of, of, of lack of fulfillment, which seems ironic to the rest of the world and even to themselves. But then they have to face the music and say, well, this isn't what life's about. It's part of life and it's a brilliant life, but it's not the be all and end all. And it's certainly not the foundation and the roof of life. Yeah. And Roger Federer is a great example of someone whose longevity at the top of the game and his passion for still competing at, at 39 I mean, it knows no bounds and he's he's just the most wonderful role model for that balance because he pretty much refuses to travel without his family. And of course, he's in a position to be able to have the private jets and take off floors of hotels to, you know, and have a number of nannies and people to, to help with the family. But he has said that many times that if his wife wasn't wanting to travel or didn't make the enormous effort to travel with four children and make the logistics of what happens off the court work, he would not be able to do what he does on the court. And Mirka, his wife, she's a former tennis player and she I mean, she's a remarkable woman. You know, they say that behind every every good man is a very strong and good, good woman. And, um, you know, I always take my hat off to her because I understand what sacrifices she must make to travel with her family across continents and just imagine all the different time zones and kids and sleep patterns and getting them schooled and all the rest of it and he's just pulled out of or or not entered the Australian Open because he didn't want to be away from his family for that length of time given all the quarantining restrictions and the 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 rules and regulations that are around the players at the moment in terms of how many people they can uh, travel with. Now, what are your favourite stories about what you just said there um, to do with behind every man, uh, there's a good woman? Um, I, it reminds me of a story you tell about your night at the O2 with Michael Bublé. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was amazing. That, that's funny that you should remember that because I was playing Michael Bublé the other day while I was doing my exercises in the kitchen as you do when you're a granny. <laughs> and uh, and I was thinking of that, you know, because it was, you know, it was literally days after Andy had won Wimbledon in 2013. And uh, I went with one of my friends and, and we had some really good seats quite near the, the front, maybe six or seven euros back from the front. And I was just like, oh, Michael Bublé, you know, just absolute in awe. And he came on and he, there was 20,000 people at the O2 and he started off his show by saying he said now a few nights ago I stood up here and I said 
Britain, you have been waiting 77 years for a Wimbledon champion and now you've got one, you've got Andy Murray. And he said, and the place went wild. And he said, well, I don't have Andy Murray tonight, but I've got his mum. And I had no idea that he knew I was even there. And he st- he said, stand up, Judy. And all these, suddenly all these lights went on me and I was beat through. And my friend was going, stand up, stand up. And I was going, oh no, you don't know what to do in that situation. And everybody was going crazy. And then, of course, she went and sang um, Beautiful Day. And I was like, oh, my word, did that really happen? Uh, and still people stop me in the street sometimes and say, I was at that Michael Bublé concert where he made you stand up in front of everybody. But, you know, you n- one of those just surreal moments, you never would have imagined something like that happening to in your life ever. I, lo- I, <laughs> I love that story because I can imagine what it might have been like being there. Because I bet the I bet the screen was because you have the magic of Buble. A Buble concert is something to behold, and you you've got the and the buzz around Andy winning. You know for for a week or a month or even a year, even now still back in 2013, winning Wimbledon and of course getting to the final of the year before and and uh, then the Olympic uh, gold as well before that. You know, there was a big buzz. So you're in a Buble concert. You're already, you're signed up. You love Buble. And then you, you, it's the it's the Andy Murray party that Andy never got to go to. And then Andy's mum's there. It's going to go crazy. Was it deafening? <laughs> it was absolutely deafening. And uh, I just actually just wanted to sit down. I was so uncomfortable <laughs> with it. You know, it's part of me going... Oh, and my friend just kept prodding me and going, stay, wave, stand up, wave, do something, you know, whatever. And I was like, oh, no. Yeah, just an incredible moment. You love your music, don't you, Judy? I, I love certain types of music. I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite old school, I think. Um, a lot of the things that I still listen to are things that I listened to, you know, when I was at school, mm-hmm. like the Bay City Rollers. Yeah. I mean, for me, having done Strictly, I found a love of exercising to music. I didn't find a love of dancing, as you can imagine, but I love exercising to music. And the way that I find it easiest to do is to create a kind of a a playlist. And when I create the playlist, nothing is modern. It's all bangles, carpenters, Barry Manilow, Queen. it's, it's, It's all quite old school, but I think that's everything that you enjoy relates to a period in your life. You know, it's like, Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run. I love that. And, you know, if I'm exercising to music, it's so much more fun than going on a treadmill or an exercise bike. And I, I follow this thing on YouTube called the Happy Mile. And, and, and sometimes there's a happy four miles or five miles. Just depends what you want to do. And I think that's the thing about staying active is you find the things that you enjoy and that are doable for you. You don't have to get dressed up in a lycra and sweat and go through (laughs) pain. But the music definitely helps me to exercise, no question. Right, so you talked about exercising there, apropos a story about rock and roll and about music. By the way, you love the killers, so you're not that out of date. I know that for a fact. I do. You love, love the, the killers. killers. Well, they're not old yeah. school, they're a brand new school. Um, they should have they should have toured here last year. Obviously they couldn't. Hopefully they will again this year. Have you seen them live? No, I haven't seen them live. I would love to see the killers live, I must say. Well, I would too, and I've never seen them live. So if they play again, would you be my date? Oh God, yes. Absolutely. I think we should do that. That would be so much fun. But apropos very little, you've talked about YouTube there and the Happy Mile, which I love the stand-up, by the way. I had no idea about that, the Happy Four Miles. You talk about exercising in the kitchen. Take us through the the, the Judy Murray um, weekly workout regime. <laughs> um, well, it kind of depends what I feel like. But I think that one of the things that I found really important to me in maybe the last four or five years is actually to stretch well when I get up 
So whether I do that on the floor in the bedroom or the floor on, on you know, in the in the kitchen de- just really depends what else I'm doing. But I've got a stretching routine that I've kind of created for myself based on a number of things I've just picked off up either off YouTube or off Instagram. And I create the things that I enjoy doing and that work for what I want to stretch. Because I think that as I've got older and particularly having grandchildren who I find really exhausting when I'm playing with them because I play so actively I always want to be able to run around and I want to be able to pick them up and all the rest of it and I recognize that I am getting much stiffer through old age so the the stretching routine for me is really important and I do that when I wake up and I usually do it at another point during the day maybe five or six o'clock as well but I'll do my happy mile or my happy uh, four miles and I, what I what I do is I try to do an hour a day but I don't do an hour all at one time because that's not practical for me and also it's boring so I chop it up into 10 and 15 minute uh, batches and I just do it when I want to, I mean I can do my I can do a 10 minute workout to the happy mile type thing while I'm making soup or something in the in the kitchen or while I'm watching tv that that's the beauty of being able to do things in your own space at your own pace um, and in your own time so that, that's what I do I try and do about an hour of something or and and included in that would be to go out for at least a half hour walk every day yeah to be in nature to feel that fresh air I've never heard about a daily workout being broken up like that before I like that because that also gives you natural separation in the chunks in your day yeah it it definitely does and because I think that often the thought of doing an hour's exercise sounds like a bit torture to some people and it certainly does to me I'm not allocating an hour like four till five is going to be my exercise hour that doesn't work for me it will work for some people but I think that now I mean I read this the other day that so many people are saying I won't go back to the gym after lockdown because I found ways of exercising myself that fit more my lifestyle Mm. Um, and don't require me to to go somewhere. And when I was reading it, I thought, yeah, you know, there's a lot more shorter workouts online now, you know, 20 minutes instead of it being 45 to an hour. And this is all because of how we've had to adapt to working from home, homeschooling, all of these kind of things that that, um, kind of are, are affecting so many people. So I think the breaking it up, it definitely works for me. And I write it down and I tick them off when I've done 10 minutes but I always do things that I enjoy. I mean, when the weather's good, I've got a little trampette out in the garden. Oh, I love them. And I used, I used to love skipping. Yeah. And what I found was, as I've got older, that's not good for my knees and probably not good for my hips either. So, But I can do exactly the same kind of thing on my trampette. And, you know, it absorbs that I'm not, I'm not, I'm getting the same exercise, but I'm not hitting a hard surface so it's much kinder on my on my joints so it's it's the adapting thing isn't it yeah and it's also you're making it easier think about going to the gym is and god bless all gyms um you know or health clubs or whatever the effort to go and you know we've been talking about tiny habits a lot on the show recently about making the things that are good for you easier and if you have to make a bigger window for so a longer window for the thing that it's going to take you to do. So you go to the gym for an hour, but it's half an hour either side. So it's a two-hour window for a one-hour, you know, physical exercise experience. But then there's the getting in the car and there's packing the bag and there's this and the other. And there's a great phrase um, 
that process, um, the savior of process um, saves us from the poverty of intent. And intent can go on forever, but just get on with it. And so so if it's in your kitchen or it's a little trampette in the garden, you know, and also if you on the trampoline, you know, you reduce the impact or the trampette, you reduce the impact, mm-hmm. you go on forever, you're out in the open air, you can see what's over the neighbor's fence, if you like. <laughs> see what they're up to <laughs> that's so good i love that because my neighbor has got five star bird bath and um you know all the things that for, for feeding the birds yeah, yeah, yeah. across this wooden wooden fence so the birds never come into my garden and the squirrels i watch the squirrels going through my garden over her hedge and straight over to her wall where all the nuts and everything are um and so i i, I actually don't need to feed them because she's got everything going on there she's like the the ritz um of bird and squirrel feeding <laughs> So you've talked about the the energy with which you uh, play with your grandkids, and you only know um, I think you only know ten on the on the energy scale. You talk about me being hyper, um, but you you choose your moments. But boy, uh, when you choose them, um, good luck everybody else. And we could we could uh, go back a couple of generations, which we will in a moment or two, if you don't mind. Talk about your your folks and maybe even your grandparents. But first of all, playing with Andy and Jamie, it was there was a lot of play going on in your house. I understand. You know, in their childhood home, there were several tennis courts. There was one in the there was one in the living room. There was one in the kitchen. In fact, every room was potentially a tennis court. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, more or less. I mean, the the living room, the sofa went across the or was pulled out from the wall across the middle of the living room, and that became. A, a kind of a, a tennis court firstly with balloons across it when they were smaller and then as they got a little bit more adept with a sponge ball and a tennis racket they could kind of play across that they used to also play in the hall which was it was a very narrow hall but again you know when you when you work in restricted spaces you actually become more accurate <laughs> you have you learn control better <laughs> in course, small spaces of course I, I, I learned all this just from watching them right you know so you know you stick it stick some piles of cushions across the middle of the hall and you've suddenly got a net or a, a barrier to hit things hit things across and the kitchen table that you mean that became a table tennis table and you know for what I learned from watching them trying to play table tennis across that, they started out with biscuit tin lids and a ping pong ball, and the net was just a row of cereal boxes. And I realized as they were trying to work out how to keep the ball on the on the table by making it bounce in front of each other, you know, they had to meet the ball in front, so I had to keep the hand out in front. And I thought, well, that's exactly what you do when you play table tennis. So they were actually learning without realizing so the game was kind of teaching them and it was making them think to work it out because nobody was trying to coach them to do it which is so much what happens nowadays kids are programmed into activity and people coach you and spoon feed you and there's not enough for me of that you know set them a challenge and they have to work it out for themselves so at that you know that kitchen table tennis was a big one and it cost nothing me just go out and buy a ping pong ball everything else is really just things that you've got in the house and when I needed the table for um for for dinner or lunch or tea or whatever you know they'd sit on the floor and we had a lino floor so the ball bounced on the lino floor and because they had to sit down and they couldn't use their legs you realized how much they learned to adapt the upper body and that's exactly what you have to do in sport as well. You have to adapt to the ball because the ball will never adapt to you. So I learned so much about how kids learn from observing my children in play situations. And that really formed the philosophy of 
everything that I do to help to develop skills in children. It's all about creating the games that do the teaching for you, finding things that mimic the movements and the actions of what it is that you want them to do and making it a game. So my, my best one um, is pinata. So create a pinata, wrap sweets uh, from the co-op, poly bag, a cheap poly bag because they break easier and lots of crunched up strips of newspaper and hang it on the end of a, a stick or a tennis racket and hold it up high enough that when they come forward with their little rackets or their hands if they don't have a racket they have to reach up high enough to be able to hit it and they won't break the pinata unless they hit it hard which means you have to make your arm go faster and before you know it <laughs> they've actually developed the 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 action that you need for an overhead smash or or serve without you doing any formal teaching it's it's actually simple genius <laughs> that's awesome so so the lta the letters lta do in fact really stand for the lino tennis association <laughs> they should do <laughs> they should rebrand for sure it's funny you say all this though because you know i remember now that you're saying this it brings back so many memories if there was a table, you know, and there's a ping pong ball, you, you'd you'd fashion some ping pong bats, you know, and if you were on your own, you'd fold the table in half and play against the, the kitchen wall. Of course, you'd do that. Anything that was long and thin would immediately become a cricket pitch. Of course, that's, so that would be by the stairs or a corridor at school or whatever. The stairs would become a mountain, wouldn't they? You know, to either climb up or slide down. It's it's all there for us. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I think it's, you know, the, what, what I always used to see with the boys, if they watched something on the TV, if yeah. they watched golf on the TV, yeah. they immediately, can we go and play golf? Yeah. And it's like, well, no, you're too, you're too small to go to the golf course and we don't have any golf clubs. So you think, right, out in the garden and you make your own crazy golf pitch and you get the inside of a, you know, a wrapping paper tube and then you chop a bit off the bottom and then you get the tape out and you make it into an, an L-shaped kind of stick thing and you use any kind of ball that you've got lying around and you use boxes and, you know, whether you're hitting it into the box and you make ramps with the planks or old shelves. And, you know, the fun of going into the garage or through the cupboards and finding things that could create a crazy golf course are absolutely brilliant. So it's not this whole thing of, oh, we can't play golf because we're not old enough or we don't have clubs or we don't have access to pitch. It's like, use your imagination and whatever you've got lying <laughs> about the house and make do it yourself. I think we're getting back to that, aren't we now, Judy? Involuntarily, but it's, <laughs> it's good for us. I think it's very good for us. Um, can I talk to you about the, the moment that you realised? You know, what was there a moment or did it creep up on you? Did, it, did you suddenly become aware of it that, that Andy and Jamie had something special? How... how you know, not just one, by the way. One could be looked, but two, there's something else going on. Uh, they, they had exceptional talent for tennis. When did you, as, as, a, as a very successful tennis player, and we'll talk about that in a bit too, yourself, 64 Scottish titles, eighth best in the UK uh, when you were a, a young woman, um, when did you realise that they had exceptional, potentially world championship talent? I think... Um... I realized that they had exceptional coordination skills, hand-eye and foot-eye coordination skills at a, at a very young age. And that's, that's great because when they were young, I just wanted them to try every sport. I mean, I love sport. I love all sports. And badminton and tennis would have been the two, my kind of two that I did the most of. But when I was at school, I did pretty much, you know, hockey team, netball team, swimming team. I, I did everything. I, I loved all that. But so I wanted them to enjoy sport. And 
I knew enough to know that if you do lots of different sports and you play actively a lot as a family, which is what I did with my family, you develop quite naturally those hand-eye and foot-eye coordination skills that they underpin all sports, you know, not just tennis. So I realized that they were very good for their age when they were, I mean, between eight and 12, they were really well ahead of what your regular eight to 12 year olds would be able to do with a, with a bat and a ball and also the tactical nous that they had as well for being able to play a game. And uh, I think the thing that I say so often to people is that, you know, having talent is one thing that doesn't, that doesn't determine that you are going to get to the top of something. What, what it is, is you're a child who is very skillful for their age and is enjoying a hobby. It becomes very different when you get to an age where that hobby has the chance to turn into a career. Because if when it's a hobby, you can park it whenever you want. You can change direction. You cannot go to play or train if you don't want to because it's just your hobby and you're a child. But you need, I think you need to be probably 15, 16, uh, mature enough to know your own mind, to know that you are able to park the hobby and go, this is serious now. I'm going to have to train every day if I want to become good enough. So there were two things that happened, I think, on the recognizing that they had exceptional skills as tennis players. And one was when they went to the Orange Bowl, which is a kind of unofficial world junior championships. And they have different age groups under 12, 14, 16s and 18s. And it's in Miami. And we'd never been to America before. And Jamie went in 1998 as an under 12 and Andy who's 15 months younger he went the following year and Jamie got to the final and lost in the final in three sets and came back with his little trophy and great tales of you know all the warm-up tournaments that they played in the Orange Bowl 128 kids in it played at this wonderful five-star hotel called the Biltmore um, in Miami just an incredible incredible experience and Andy went the following year with no fear whatsoever because Jamie had been done well, had a great time, brought back a little trophy um, and Andy went and won it. And that was really within those 12 months of recognizing that they were both among the best for their age. Again, no guarantees of anything. Don't get carried away. You know, they're just kids enjoying what they're doing. But I think for me, that recognizing of, oh my goodness, you know, they are actually really good in global terms for their age and I have no experience to know what do you do next because for me it was always learning as we went along it's like right what do they need to be able to do now what am I going to have to um what am I going to have to learn in order to teach them or prepare them for what comes next and you know there was no track record of success in tennis in Scotland there was no infrastructure there were pretty much hardly any indoor courts or certainly weren't world-class players or coaches so there was nobody to learn from and that was that was one one time when I thought oh god you know they are both among the best in the world for their age and I think that further down the line when um, Andy won his first men's title which on the lowest rungs of the men's tour called the future circuit and he was 16 maybe 16 and a half that was a big sign because he was young to, to have done that. And also that's a couple of months before that, he beat his first top 100 player on grass during the summer. He'd been giving a, given a wild card into an event in Manchester by the LTA. And he beat a South African guy who was 
ranked inside the top 100. And that was a sign as well that he was able to do that as a very young player who was just being given an opportunity against a very much more experienced guy. And that I think those two things happening within a few months of each other were, for me, a sign of, I think it's possible that he could become really good. But again, you know, there's never any guarantees. And it, it comes back to, to this thing. It's the, the talent has to meet the opportunity. You have to be given the opportunities that, you know, whether that's the right training environment, access to the right competition, the right variety of, of sparring partners, the right advice along the way. And then what comes on top of that is the hard work, you know, bringing the great attitude, the, you know, working your socks off every single day to take advantage of the opportunity to allow your talent to maximize. And that was really what um, what Andy and Jamie did. You know, they had the talent. We created the opportunities and other people created opportunities like even that wild card into Manchester. Somebody created that within the head of men's tennis at the LTA to give him the opportunity. Um, Emilio Sanchez gave Andy great opportunities when he trained in Barcelona. He always let him play with the top players when they came into that training base. You know, so he got, whether it was a set or a practice session with Guillermo Coria, even some of the, the women players as well. He, we would never have been able to create that opportunity in Scotland. So many people create the opportunities, but the hard work is the thing that cements whether you maximise what you've got. So I think that, you know, after that, when he won his first men's title, ATP men's title in San Jose in 2006, he went on his own with Kim, who was his girlfriend at the time. They were both 18. She was on school holidays in February. Um, Andy's coach couldn't go with him because his kids were on school holidays and he wanted to spend time with his family quite rightly. And the two of them went off, went off together. And he won that first title on his own with Kim, no coach. Um, he had a doubles partner with him called James Auckland, uh, an, an older British player uh, who was there you know, to play doubles and also acted as a, a, a hitting partner. But the fact that he could do that by himself without anybody, you know, showed the strength of character, his tactical nous, his determination and his, you know, ability to be independent and responsible. And tennis is such a problem-solving sport that you have to be able to look after yourself and think for yourself. And I, th I think for me that was a sign because he beat Leighton Hewitt in the final, and Leighton Hewitt is one of the world's greats. And Andy had kind of, he was about 18 and a half. So that was another big sign. So I think it's not as simple as, you never know if, if you know, what's going to happen. You never know. I mean, the, there are little signs that they are good at certain stages, um, but you know you, you just you just don't know because it's such a long and tough road. And of course, Andy was uh, he's operated in the strongest era ever of men's tennis with Novak and Rafa and Fed um, all at their at their strongest at the same time as him. And he always says that that made him stronger because they were so good, and he was always trying to. Um, become as good as them that they all pushed each other to the great heights that they got to that's the best answer to any question i've ever asked <laughs> it's probably the longest as well <laughs> seriously what an answer because you because you because you basically the answer is no um there, there's not a moment there, there's incremental moments you know when andy won um the men's singles at uh, you know the at wimbledon uh did you realize then he was quite good 
<laughs> yeah, I he's not. He's not bad. He's doing all right. Yeah, that, that is just and Jamie too, by the way, in the doubles. And um, as a mum slash coach, right? Um, even though you were getting this amazing feedback with actual wins, you know, in their teens, you know, um, maybe in the best top hundred in the world for their age, you still had to make that decision. Do you go all in or do you hedge your bets? You know even by 10% or 20%, just in case. And that was a decision you had to sort of face head on. So so t- tell us about that. That was, um, yeah, that was a, a, a big decision to make. I think in 2004, September 2004, Andy won the US Open Juniors um, in New York. And that was another sign you know because he won it a year young he was just turned 17 so he could have played in the junior event the following year so it was a very good sign in terms of stats the number of male players who went on to reach the top 10 who had become junior grand slam champions a year young um so i had to kind of believe or hope that winning that was a sign that perhaps we would be able to attract some more sponsorship that more people would believe that he had the potential to get to the top of the men's game because at that stage the finances are crippling because in the juniors there's no prize money whatsoever so you're paying out all the time to be part of this world junior circuit the ITF junior junior circuit and you're paying out as if you're going on holiday um you know you've got the travel, the accommodation, you've got the meals, you've got the prize money, you've got physio if, if, if you need it, et cetera, et cetera. So the expenses of developing a young player are absolutely massive and it rules out many, many families. So for, for me, I realised, right, that's him, won a junior grand slam, he's going to need to move more into the, the, the men's circuit. And that is when it becomes very much dog eat dog. You know, the the junior circuit is a relative comfort zone. You know, the kids, the players all kind of know each other. The coaches know each other. The parents tend to know each other as well. And then you go into the men's circuit where there are, of course, tournaments in every corner of of the globe and you know nobody. And it's very, very tough. It was, um, you know, people playing for their mortgages and their kids and their cars or their meal tickets or just even get the ability to get to the next the next tournament and so it's a it's very very different um very different feel but for for me what happened after that US Open juniors was that I was the Scottish national coach at the time so therefore I could influence a lot of things that could happen but I was very restricted by having a, a very small budget but I was also restricted by having the people who perhaps were the board of tennis Scotland or the key decision makers within sports Scotland, not believing that we could produce world-class tennis players in Scotland because it's such a minority sport and nobody had ever aspired to do that before. Um, Because we just didn't have any, I created an infrastructure, but prior to that, we didn't have an infrastructure. And so after US Open Juniors, I made a presentation to Sports Scotland for more funding for our players. We had three boys in the US Open Juniors that year, Jamie Baker, Jamie Murray and Andy, and they all needed to train outside the country. And that requires a significant amount of investment. And I was so sure that they would back me and give me more funding because of winning a Junior Grand Slam. And and Andy had won this Junior Grand Slam 10 years after I started as national coach. So all the very young children that I started with um, and created through my development schools, 
you know, there were a significant number of them who were getting to a very good international standard and requiring training environments outside of the country. So I made the presentation. I was absolutely convinced that they would support me better than they they had done before. And and basically the guy sort of looked at me. I finished the presentation off, you know, went through the 10 years, put put down, you know, where we were at, what I needed to do, what it was going to cost. And I finished it off by saying, and now 10 years later, Scotland has a junior Grand Slam champion in tennis. And the guy looked at me and said, but we're not interested in junior Grand Slam champions. We're interested in Grand Slam champions. And I stared at him with my best death stare. (laughs) And I really did because it was so ignorant. It was so, how do you expect me with this tiny little budget and next to no staff? And I'm trying to do this all by myself and I'm responsible for everything. I was responsible not just for player development, but for coach education, talent identification, Oh, so many things just as one person because of having so little resource. And um, I just thought, right, that's it. I've spent 10 years trying to convince people that I'm on the right track, that we've got great players, we've got possibilities. And I thought, no, nah, you know, I can't get them to believe in me. And I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that it was because I was a woman. I think partly because none of them really understood tennis or believed in tennis. But I, I think a lot of it is because I was a woman and, and partly because I was the mom of, of two of the players that, that were part of the pool that I was pushing. So I, I basically folded up all my stuff. It was, the, it was the final kind of slap in the face of, you know, um, and uh, yeah, I, I folded up all my papers and I picked up my stuff and I said, OK, that's it. I'm done. And so I resigned uh, and I had, I had to do three months um, work my notice. But it was a massive risk for me because it was my job. My car went with my job. It was being in a position to be able to plan the programs and the competitive schedules for the players. And now I was going to really walk away from that and give the best possible opportunity that I could to Jamie and Andy. But in the back of my mind, I had to believe that winning a junior Grand Slam for Andy and Jamie and him made the semis of the doubles, that that would help to bring sponsorship in. And we were, it was, it really was a massive, massive risk for me. And I was so lucky that by summer 2005, Andy had, that was when he really took off. He got the wild card at Queen's, the wild card at Wimbledon. You know, he won matches in both of them. We brought some prize money in and was able to pay for a coach, Mark Petchy, to work with him. We invested everything that he that he made. We invested in a team around him, you know, a, a more or less full-time coach. That was all we could afford at the time. And then we started to add in part-time fitness trainer, part-time physio. You know, we we tried to just invest everything to create the best possible environment and the right people or as right people as we could get around him to help him to grow. And within a year of becoming US Open Junior Grand Slam champion, he was 64 in the world and he was playing Roger Federer in the final of the ATP event in Bangkok. So he he went very, very quickly from June 2005 to November 2005. Within six months, he moved from something like 400 in the world to 64 and because he managed to do that, you know, he was earning prize money. We were reinvesting it. But it, it, I was having to then learn about the life and business of 
managing a young professional athlete because as soon as you become successful like that, everybody wants a piece of you. So sponsors, agents, media, all the things that you then have to learn as well as hitting the ball and winning tennis matches were starting to kick in. And you need somebody that you can trust to manage all that side for you. So I started to learn a lot more about the business side um, of tennis. Uh, I can do tax returns in four different countries. I bet you didn't know that, did you? <laughs> I can do massage. <laughs> I did a PR course. I did. I learned all sorts of things to try to understand the world that we were now starting to live in. I take it back. That's the best answer to any question I've asked. <laughs> oh, Judy, you are, the story you have to tell. I mean, it's so powerful and it's really emotional. You know, hearing that guy or hearing what that guy had, the audacity, the narrow mindedness um, to, to say to you. I mean, you know, you must have been furious. And, you know, one could say that, you know, resigning in the end, that you, of course, it's now turned out to be one of the best things you could do. But at, at the time, you could be forgiven for just having to do it because you otherwise you'd explode. And in the long run, it being the wrong thing to do. But of course, fury and ire are energy. And you just have to convert that energy fr from what it was to what you want it to be. Yeah, you absolutely have to. You have to go with your gut. And I thought, uh, I've been battling this for, for, you know, for 10 years now, trying to get um, the the right kind of support to give Scotland a chance to produce world class players and world class coaches and and I think what many people probably they probably know now but and I think since I did my book and I did a big book tour around my book it really helped me to tell the backstory because for so long once I gave up the Scottish national coach job I really became known as Andy and Jamie's mum I, I wasn't known as a coach if you know what I mean that I kind of lost my identity uh, as a coach and I think it I think that was one of the one of the the toughest things for me to do was to walk away from from that job but at, at some point you've got to believe you've got to believe in yourself and I've always been one of these people if something needs to be done you get off your butt and you do it and you back yourself to do it you don't wait for somebody else to do it and you know as of, of course, the boys both went on to become successful. But as you say, they might not have been. But I wanted to give them the opportunity. Um, and uh, and, and I'm, you know what? I'm glad that it was difficult. And I'm glad that people pissed me off along the way. Because it actually, I've always been one of these people that if you tell me I can't do something, I'll, I really will go out of my way to, to prove you wrong. So I think, and Andy's exactly the same. It, it provides a fuel for you to go, right you reckoned I couldn't do this or we couldn't do this. And you know what? I'm going to give it my absolute best shot. You know, that's all to do with steeliness. Uh, and it, it's come across over the years from both you and your boys. But where does it come from in you? Where, where does that not need, um, it might be a need, but where does that, that drive to, to, to go out on a limb to prove other people wrong come from? Because I know about your childhood, which was very harmonious, very supportive, very loving, you know, very active, very positive. And usually you find, you find a bit of trauma, you know, when there's drive like that around. Um, but we could, may that be, may that come from the frustration, um, albeit not, not at all, um, uh, um, sort of uh, combative frustration of you not being able to achieve your dreams. And by the way, I'm not talking about being a pushy parent or living your dreams through your kids or anything like that. I'm talking about the opposite of that. But but this drive must come from somewhere. 
Yeah, you know, I think as you get older, you do you do see things better in hindsight, don't you? Uh, you, can, you? You can see them with a maturity and you can probably see them clearer than when things are happening at the time. But I, I definitely think that looking back, when I got the opportunity to coach at our local club and it came as a volunteer you know I, I did a couple of hours a week when the kids were very small really to keep me active and give me something to do and I wasn't a coach I was just somebody who played the game well and wanted to I suppose give back and stay fit by working with some of the older juniors at the club that was really how I got into coaching so always loved what I've done and discovered that I actually love teaching and sharing my my sport and as I grew things at the club first and then in the wider area around the club which you might call kind of like a county setup and then you know because I upgraded my coaching qualifications and I kept trying to learn because I always knew that to invest in myself was to invest in all the kids that came under my wing whether that was kids at club level or playing in the school teams and so forth or whether it was a county and then I went and did the LTA's Performance Coach Award, and I was the first woman to pass that way back in 1995. It was a year-long course. It was a big investment for me. Kids were small, big investment financially and in terms of time because all the courses and the workshops were all uh, down south. Um, but when I, when I passed that, the Scottish National Coach job came up not long after I'd passed it and nobody wanted that job because there was no infrastructure. So it was never going to attract a top coach with a track record from another country because at that time we had no indoor courts. So you could really pretty much play six or seven months of the year if you were lucky. So nobody aspired to be a great coach. Nobody aspired to be a great player because the infrastructure just wasn't there to allow it to, to happen. But when I went for it because I had the passion for it. I understood the limitations I was getting into. And as soon as I got that job, for me, it was just like at the club, just like at the county. It was all about creating opportunities for kids to play and to improve. And those opportunities, it's not just coaching. It's creating the competitions. It's creating the opportunities to travel. It's creating awareness of what else is happening in the tennis world, not just in your little backyard. And I think all the things that I would have loved to have been in place when I was a young player, you know, opportunities to uh, travel to the, the the junior circuits in Europe and, and around the world that were never there. You you kind of had to make things happen for, for yourself. There was never anybody to accompany you or put, put things together for you. And so for me, it was, I think it was creating opportunities for the Scottish kids to do what kids in so many other countries were able to do because their governing body had an infrastructure to allow it to happen and I that was really I think what 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 drove me to create to create those opportunities you know when I when I got started as a national coach and you know one thing kind of led to the other and it was like okay right what's next and because the kids that I started with because I started with pretty much a, a, a blank canvas the kids that I started with were aged between seven and 11. My common sense told me that you start with the youngest ones and then you can form them in your way. You're not, a, you're not, you're not sort of inheriting somebody else's preformed uh, teenagers. And that, that's not to say I didn't work with the teenagers, but I did. But I always saw the best opportunity was to be with the youngest ones because then you can develop the skills, you can form them the way create the opportunities that, that they need and out of the 20 children that I started with who were aged between 7 and 11 Andy would be the youngest Jamie and Jamie Baker a year older 
Colin Fleming, two years older than that. Elena Baltacha, one year older than that. Four Davis Cup players and one Fed Cup player. So, so Bally went on to be British number one for many, many years, top 50 in the world. And and the boys, as you know, all did. They all did incredible things. But as well as developing um, players, I had to develop a team of coaches. And I, I knew that I didn't have the experience or the track record to know how to do that. But my gut was telling me, I just have to find people who do know and bring them in to help me. And I brought people in from other countries, you know, Belgium, USA, France, um, England, fitness trainers I brought up from England to, to help me with certain things. But I, my common sense told me, don't just bring them in for a one-off hit, make relationships with them. And so I brought them in for two or three days at a time, three times a year. So they became the people who helped me to build a team and my team around me we were all in it together you know it was like they were educating me uh, the, these foreigners were educating me as much as I was trying to help my team to grow and out of the team of coaches that we produced I mean one significant one was um, Leon Smith who's head of men's tennis and has been Great Britain's winning Davis Cup captain he's been the captain for about 12 years now but he started with me when he was 20 and so a uh, Karen Ross who until quite recently headed up uh, British disability tennis. I mean, with that number of really big successes out of our coaching team as well. So my little cottage industry, uh, it, it's a real example of it's not what you have, it's what you do with what you have and the importance of investing in people and creating that team and community spirit. And it's, and it's also that, I was asked this the other day, you know, what, you know, that's your favourite saying. And I said, it's it's reach for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground. And we were reaching, we were reaching for the stars, <laughs> but the stars were only like the next step and then the next step and the next step. But it was, why shouldn't we be able to produce world-class tennis players and coaches in Scotland? And, and at the end of the day, that's exactly what we did. I love it. And looking down on your story and listening to it first time, which is a great honour, by the way, I feel so lucky at the moment to, to be talking to you about this particular part of your life. You know, it's for me, I can I can sort of I can feel this frustration in you creating the opportunities because to create opportunities don't exist you create them and that takes so much energy and effort uh, and passion and commitment and all the guy for, for forever may he remain nameless for his own sake all he had to do was allow the opportunity because you'd created it and all he had to do was sign it off and he didn't do that and that must have frustrated the bloody hell out of you and i get that and it happens in all businesses all the time doesn't it the gatekeepers you know they don't get it because they've got a pen and a paper and they've got a certain station or they've they've been given a position and they often say this about leaders don't they you know um, you cannot call yourself a leader you cannot have the job of a leader you can be put in charge but that doesn't make you a leader you know you, you are very you are indirectly or almost sort of covertly um, uh, voted as a leader by the people who who end up feeling like they've been led by you. And often it's the other way around. And, and you know, to deny, that guy denied, denied you and, and your boys the opportunity. And it was so within his gift. And, you know, that, that must, what do we, what do we take from that? So if people find themselves in a similar similar situation to, to you then now you know 
where where in that lies the lesson what do you do in that situation do you take a breath you know do you throw your toys out of the pram what would you do today with another third well what what is it 20 odd years more experience differently to how you did then to achieve the same result it's an interesting point because when i look back i i mean you know i never would have imagined that the boys would achieve all that they would go on to achieve. I never would have imagined that I would find myself in a position of being the Fed Cup captain further down the line. I I really wouldn't. But I think I'm not a believer in looking back and complaining about things because what's in the past in the past and we can we can only look forward and move forward. But you're always formed by your experiences. We're all products of our environment. And I definitely think that because people made it really difficult for me, that made me more determined to succeed and to prove them wrong. I mean, I never give up on anything. Um, the, the boys are exactly the same. You know, I, I will never give up on anything that I, that I believe in. And, and so in lots of ways, I'm glad it was difficult because it made us all work hard. It made us um, appreciate everything that that we we did get when when we did get it. But I think that now in that same situation, I would be very much bolder now. But that's because I've had success and I've lived through, you know, thirty years of coaching tennis at every level, from volunteer at the club right up to the player boxes at the Grand Slams uh, and the and the Olympics. But I definitely, I think as a woman, I feel much stronger now that I can speak up and I would argue much more against it. Or I would go beyond that person who held the, 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 held the hand up and said, you know, stop, no, it's not going to work or don't be silly or, you know, whatever it is. I would find a way around that. I would, I would, I would you know, instead of just going off and doing it by myself I think that now I would find a way around that and I would and I would air anything that was completely unfair I, I would I would back myself to find people who could open those doors because I believe in that rather than just taking it and going right okay I'll go off and do it by myself I think um I don't know if that really makes sense but I, I just I, I would feel stronger to know that, right, I could pick up the phone to more people now because I I know more. I, you know, I've, I've got quite a big network. I, I, I've got the profile. I've got the strength. I've got the track record. I've got the expertise. And I would feel more comfortable to go, right, so if one person says no to me, I don't take that as a no. I might take that as a not yet. And I'll find a way round it because I believe either in myself or what it is that I'm promoting but I think when you're younger and you're less experienced and you don't really have anything to fight with other than your passion it's quite you, you, then you then you're just backing yourself and you just go off and you find ways to do it yourself but I think you can and it's why it's one of the reasons why I, I, I'm such a big believer in building an army around yourself so you know if I look back to when I was the national coach the army that I initially built around myself because I had no staff was the parents and then I started to build my team of coaches and more recently I've been tasked by the LTA with trying to grow the number of female coaches um, across the UK 
so I, I did it with an army. I, I brought in initially 28 women, very part-time, um, trained them all up, and they go out into their backyards and they train other women within their backyards to join their army. So whether that's mums or teachers or teenage girls or club members, and now I have 52 in that army because there's, you can do so much on your own, but you can do a whole lot more if you've got the right people around you. And another good point that you made about leaders is that people want to follow someone. But to, to have people to follow you, you need to lead by example. You don't just sit behind a desk and fire out emails and uh, you know, do this, do that, whatever. You have to get out in amongst them, and that is really is what I is what I do with all my grassroots tennis stuff now. I get out around the country, I get my hands dirty, and and people do want to follow you because you go out and you share, and you and you lead by example. So I think that leaders and followers thing um, was a, a a good point that you made about that because you can you can think you're a leader just because you've got the title, but if you don't lead by example and you don't create an army you're not really a leader you're just someone who's in charge like you said yeah well you're living a fantasy aren't you yeah so culture and community can we talk about dunblane of course we have to talk about dunblane which has seen the happiest and, and the saddest of times uh 24 years on um from 1996 um your reflections on what happened then and what you were able to bring back to the town and, and still are now, um, because you do cite, don't you, as, as one of the, the, the sort of um, the most worthwhile things that you, you know, you as and or Team Murray have done is, is to, to put Dunblane back on the map for something other than the unthinkable. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think the, the boys success over many years now has brought huge um, excitement and pride to the town but it's also brought a lot of visitors to the town you know whether they're coming to visit the gold post box or there's a wonderful little museum um, in Dunblane up beside the cathedral and it's got a, a small section that has some of Andy and Jamie's trophies and lots of bits and pieces of memorabilia in it but a lot of people come to visit the the gold post box which obviously was a result of Andy's um, gold medal at the at the Olympics so it's it's created um, people thinking of the town for happy, positive, successful reasons rather than um, what happened with the tragedy. And that's not to say that any of us who live in the town uh, would ever forget the tragedy. Um, but the town has recovered well. It's, you know, it's moved on. It's the, the 25th anniversary this March. Um, uh, but yeah, I think you know when when that happened, uh, my mum had a toy shop in the high street, so we knew a lot of the a lot of the the kids and, and of course and and the parents. And the the day that it happened, um, I was working in the in the toy shop, and I I remember my mum coming flying through the door. She she wasn't working, but she'd heard something on the radio, and she came down. Um, she'd been trying to phone, but one of the other ladies was on the phone so she couldn't get through and she came flying through the door and she said there's been a shooting at the primary school and and I remember looking at her and said don't be ridiculous and she said no no there has and then the woman who was on the phone in the shop she said 
No, it's right. My daughter's just called and it's been on the radio and there's a man in the playground with a gun or some, something, something like that. And I just grabbed my car keys and ran out the shop, jumped in my car and was on my way to the school. And I, I, I remember just, I, I was shouting at the top of my voice to myself in the car, get out of the way, get out of the way. And then realizing that all the other cars that were stacking the roads on the way to the, the school were actually parents like myself who were just trying desperately to get to the school to find out what was was happening and uh, abandoned my car, ran to the school. And this was in the days, you know, mobile phones weren't around in those days. So nobody knew what was going on. But of course, there was ambulances in the playground and school gates were shut. But we, we could see a certain amount. There was just this throng of parents, obviously, um, with no idea what was what was happening. And many, many hours later, we we were able to pick our kids up. It was all very, very carefully orchestrated who, who went, you know, went in at, at what time to get their kids uh, from the playgrounds. And um, by that time, we knew a little of, of what had, had happened. And when I got Jamie and Andy into the car to take them home, they had no idea what had happened. Um, they just knew that there had been a man in the playground with a gun, but they didn't know anything of the tragedy that had unfolded. And the teachers had done this remarkable job of keeping them in the classrooms, feeding them in the classrooms, keeping everything calm, and then getting them out in their batches to their parents at the right time so that everything was very controlled and I, I I just absolutely take my hat off to what they did that day, given what they knew was was going on. And you know, I was so I was glad that the boys hadn't known about it; that they were too young to understand the enormity of it. Because obviously, I stopped the car to tell them what had happened, and because they had gone to Thomas Hamilton's boys' clubs up at Dumbling High School which they absolutely loved, you know, great fun activities, football, pirates, all, all these fun things that you did with a gang of boys. They really couldn't understand, obviously, who could, why he would do something like that. And, and you can't give answers to them when they ask something like that because you have, you have no idea. So the, the, um, the, the shock of that, you know, went on for many weeks you know that something like that could happen in your little town and because I was um I, I was working in tennis and because I still had strong links at the, at the club you know it was trying to get things back to normal because life has to go on for for the kids and so forth and I, you know I I never will never forget how lucky I was that I was collecting my kids that day because some of my friends were not you know they had lost their children in the class in the, the in the gym that day and I think that I think that as well looking back was another thing of you've got to live for the moment you never know what's around the corner and you grasp life with both hands and you go after whatever it is that you want to want to do with it and um you know, I think it probably pushed me more into the whole creating opportunities and living for the moment and 
going after whatever it is that you want to do. But the creating opportunities for the children, um, certainly in in the town through through the tennis club, probably became an even an even bigger thing um, after after that. Judy, that's that's amazing. Thank you for being so candid um, with that answer. And of course, adversity. You know, we we often refer back to and you know overcoming adversity again, like you talk about. You know, it makes you more driven than ever to appreciate every moment of every minute of every hour, every day, every week, every month of of your whole life. But life, one of my favourite quotes is Judy: "Life doesn't get easier; we just get better at it." And that always makes me smile. Yeah, it's a it's a good one, that isn't it? It's uh, you get better at managing it because you can, you know, experience is a great thing, isn't it? You, I think I've I've always been a common sense person. I've, you know, I'm not a I'm not a panicker except when it comes to technology and I can't work technology. That's or or if I get lost in my car, it's somewhere busy and I don't know where I'm going and I've got a deadline. That's the only two times in that I that I can hold my hand up and say that I really panic about. Otherwise, I common sense and I work things out and I could take a breath and I think the advantage of uh, experience um, is a huge thing you do you get better at managing problems obstacles expectations um, and I think I, I hope I'm a good person to come to I, I you know if, if people are in trouble or worried about something or need to be reassured I think I'm quite a good person to come to because I can be quite objective and quite empathetic, but quite firm of here's how you deal with that. And have you asked, and I ask a lot of questions. Have you thought about this? Have you done this? Because at the end of the day, it's not about what we know. It's about what we can influence them to think for themselves. And it's not, well, she told me to do this or she told me to do that. She actually opened my eyes to thinking about this way or that way. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, the advantage of hindsight and uh, maturity and and experiences and adversity. And you're right. You know, when the more things you come through that have been difficult for you, and you come out the other side, you gain a confidence from that. And I think if you can share those experiences, that is very a strong position to to be in as well yeah. And I think the experience and the wisdom, if you like, and I'm never sure about the definition of wisdom comes from the fact i think it's the difference between overcoming adversity and thinking right well that's that then and not realizing it's going to happen again the next day uh, as opposed to overcoming it remembering what you've learned from having just overcome some adversity and and putting that in your arsenal uh, f- for the next time it comes knocking at your door which could be in the next minute or the next year uh, hopefully as long way as possible but that's the thing isn't it it's like you know night follows day day follows night um it's always going to come and you know as long as you're ready for it and as long as you you're able to dismantle it and and pause you know and respond to it as opposed to react to it which we always talk about and which you're brilliant at you know and i've heard you talk before about the fact you you know when there's a problem that that's when you roll up your sleeves and you you don't begin to salivate but you're pretty close sometimes you go oh i love a problem come on here we go come on you problem good luck with this you've got judy murray to deal with here yeah i think i think that's so right i've i've always seen that you know challenge obstacle right how do I get around it or over it or under it or you know whatever and I think that from 
traveling a lot as a relatively young coach, when I got the opportunity to travel overseas with Great Britain under 12 and under 14 teams as a female coach, you know, once I passed that performance coach award, it gave me the opportunity to travel with teams because I was one of so few female coaches that could travel with the, with the girls. And I learned so much on those journeys because when you're responsible for somebody else's children and you don't know an awful lot because you are relatively inexperienced in traveling overseas to these terms. You know, I'm not afraid to ask questions of anybody. And I think that is quite a strength of women. And I think it probably comes from over the years that the world being created for men and women having to find their way into it. So if we don't know something, we just go out and ask, or we find somebody to who's been through it to ask. And so for me, that was always a, a big thing, um, learn from everybody who is around you. And actually I've got notebooks and notebooks full of all the things that I learned from other, other coaches. So I think, um, yeah, it is, it's definitely the, 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 the wisdom and the experience and the willingness to share, but it's also about being able to listen you need to be able to listen to people and you need to be able to communicate well and communicate well is not just telling people what to do. It's actual listen, ask questions, try to get them to think, open their minds to, to, to a different way, but sharing your own experience while also saying this was my experience because everybody's different. So it's my experience, but this might not be the same for you, but here's how I dealt with it. I think I'm a big one for not forcing your opinion on someone, yes, sharing, but doing it in such a way that they feel you're sharing, you're on their side, but you're not saying, don't do this or do that or whatever, no, you're wrong, you know, whatever. It's, I think it's a teaching thing. I think for me, I love teaching and I love trying to work out ways for people to learn. And every person who asks you to help them with something, whether that's a forehand or a relationship problem or, you know, whatever it is, um, they're all different. And actually, unless you know them well as people, it's harder to find the right solution. That's what I say in coaching all the time. The better you get to know your pupils as people. So spend time with them away from the court. You know, I'll say your, your best learnings about your pupils are probably at Pizza Hut or bowling or going for a swim or <laughs> taking them to the beach or something because they're relaxed and they open up more. When you know them, it's easier to find the right way around them. And I found that when I did Fed Cup, you know, you've got a, a team of four or five women who basically play as individuals the bulk of the year. Now you have to bring them together and form a team and you have to sit with them on court and give them advice or tips every change of ends. And that's not an easy thing to do if you don't know them very well as people. You, you need to know what they're going to respond to and what they're going to react to. So, yeah, I think... Um, I've always I always think that psychology for me is always so much about common sense. Um, but, I, you know, it also is one of the reasons why I worry about so much screen times and the, and the way that we communicate with people now that that's digitally, you know, it's, it's WhatsApp or it's Instagram or it's social media or it's Zoom or whatever. The face to face thing and spending time getting to know people and really mastering the art of communication. We've got to and intergenerational communication. We've got to get back to making that uh, a priority yeah so the the level playing field now you know is is uh, becoming 
unstable because of technology, because of environment, because of virtual over real. Um, but back in your day, you know, there was a lot of prejudice. You've mentioned it a couple of times now, uh, you know, to do with women and sport, women in sport, women in sport, uh, trying to deal with the powers that be that had very few females, if any in them at all. If during your time as a young tennis player and a young coach and the stories we've just heard, if prejudice or if um, equality was a one out of 10 then, let's let's go way down. Let's say it was a one out of 10 then. What is it today? Because you've just done this brilliant show on Sky uh, talking to, you know, really accomplished uh, UK female athletes. How far have we come? How far is it to go? What can we all do to help? Yeah, I think we've come. Uh, I think we've come quite a long way. Um, I think it feels to me that London getting the 2012 Olympics was the catalyst for a lot of the momentum um, shift in the right direction for women in sport and women's sport, because having a home Olympics meant you want to showcase your top athletes. You want to be successful so the investment in the performance of women's teams and individual female athletes really ramped up um, and there was huge success and huge profile and I think that we then rode the storm of that of, from from 2012 and if you look particularly at the teams and the England women's teams especially in cricket netball, hockey, rugby and football, they are all world-class performers now. And I have long argued that until we invested in the performance and got the performances up to world-class, people don't want to watch them. People don't want to televise them. People don't want to buy tickets for them. The performance has to be great because if it isn't, you know, we're so easily judged as women on how we look, how we perform, that if we get it wrong and it's not very good, you're instantly dismissed because of that. So now we have world-class performers in, I mean, even Scotland women qualified for the World Cup in football last year. And we were late to the party. We started um, professionalizing, if that's the right word, women's football a long time after England did. But we're starting to catch up. And that was a massive, massive shot in the arm for women's sport in Scotland and the visibility that 18,000 people watched their last warm up match before they went up to the World Cup. And I went to watch that and I just was part of the crowd swarming into the into um, Hamden. And the families, you know, the mums and dads with the daughters, the teenagers with the faces painted. And I thought, this is fantastic. This is what this is what we need. The, the visibility is so important. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why when I got the opportunity to do Driving Force, the, the, the TV series that features 11 of Britain's most successful sportswomen, it's to tell the backstory of what got them there, you know, who inspired them, what inspired them, what were the curveballs along the way, what are the highs like, what were the lows, you know, the, the injuries, the lack of funding, the getting up at half three in the morning to get drive an hour to get to the swimming pool to be able to train. You know, actually exposing all of that, um, what, what I hoped it would do, and, uh, and, it's, and it's been great so far, I think we've, we've aired about seven uh, or the seventh episode is tonight with Sarah's story. But 
you know, it, it doesn't just raise the profile and the awareness of everything that these sportswomen have achieved. It also raises a lot of these issues and challenges that still exist in women's sport. But it will create a lot of talking points about the things that still need to change in order for the next generation to have more equality of opportunity at getting to the top of uh, of sport as women. And for me, of course, my side, I'm loving the opportunity to do something different, to hear the stories, um, but also to promote the importance of having a much stronger female, bigger and stronger female workforce across sport. And that doesn't just mean coaches. That means, you know, officials, umpires, referees, journalists, physios, trainers, we need many more women around to create a better sporting environment for women. Because in the episode that we did with Victoria Pendleton, she spoke very eloquently about the challenges for her of being the only female in the training environment, having an all-male backroom team and having nobody to speak to about women's things, whether that's women's problems, emotions, fashion, you know, whatever it is. and. That I found that her episode really sad because one of the things she talked about was befriending the lady who worked at the reception in the training centre that she was at overseas. So she sacrificed um, her, her social life, her educational life to go and train overseas in order to chase this dream of the gold medal and being the best in the world um, sprint cyclist. But at the same time, her life balance went out the, the window so befriending the receptionist to go for walks with her at lunchtime just so that she could talk to another female it really opened my eyes to we have to expose all of this because we have to get everybody understanding the importance of having more women around around the sporting environment in every you know in every aspect and the other thing I think for me you know having worked in sport for 30 years and it's it's so much about equality of opportunity in terms of career pathways so whether you're an athlete coach or, or whatever there have there has to be opportunities at every step of the way to help more women to get to the top of the tree so that we have more women in decision-making positions because sport has traditionally been a male-dominated domain it's taken much longer for women to break into it at every level but particularly at the top level and if it's always male decision makers of course they see the world with men's eyes and hear it with men's ears that's perfectly natural but if we don't have women up there with them the women get left behind we're always playing second fiddle we're always playing playing catch up we need to have a voice at the top table so male advocacy is incredibly important and sebco played a big part in uh, the creation of driving force and he's an incredibly strong male advocate for women in sport and as head of world athletics he told me that their goal as a 50 50 sport the men and the women do all the same disciplines it's equal prize money in athletics uh, events that by 2027 that's seven years time six years time now they want to have a 50-50 split in their workforce across all the roles in athletics. And I thought, 
that's what I want to hear. I want timelines. I want commitment. I want, yes, we understand it's a 50-50 split in the population world. It's a relative 50-50 split in the fans that are watching your sport. So let's have a 50-50 split in the workforce that delivers um, sport. So it's that kind of thing um, that I hope that Driving Force will raise so many so many talking points that we actually get some action that makes the sporting world a better place for women in years to come. Wow. And um, what's striking about what you said there, particularly um, in my ears for the first time, is that absolute equality doesn't equal absolute parity until you get the equal quality from a performance point of view, which is going to attract spectators and sponsors and the spotlight. Because in the end, you know, it shouldn't be the way, but money talks. And, you know, you need that to to support, you know, from the grassroots up uh, and beyond. But of course, that only comes with equal with, with equal opportunity and equal resources. So, so it's this sort of, it's this, um, it's this sort of uh, ongoing circle um, that's had lots of, that didn't exist before, but seems to be coming together. Um, and, and that's what has to happen. So, so women have to be given as many opportunities, resources, time and support, energy, education, and experience to, to allow themselves to be given the chance to make their sport as exciting on the pitch, the court, as men's sport is today. Absolutely. I mean, we've been in a strong position um, in tennis for many years now at the top level because of what Billie Jean King and her original nine team did 50 years ago. You know, when they broke away from the tour because the men were getting 90% of the gate and the women were getting 10%, they broke away and they really went out on a limb, took a massive risk and set up the women's tour you know they they were even out in the streets selling tickets themselves they had to kind of really start the whole thing from from scratch and because they did that 50 years ago the women's tour in tennis has become the really strong marketable sporting uh, event that it has become with relatively equal prize money equal prize money certainly in the grand slams which are the majors you know big prize money on the regular women's tour market forces dictate what you know what what that is but massive opportunities for endorsements and sponsorships along the way because tennis is so well profiled you know the the biggest events in the world are men and women at the same venue like the u.s open wimbledon french open and australia olympics men and women obviously uh, some of the bigger events uh, like rome miami indian wells they're men's and women's at the same venue those are the biggest and most successful probably most profitable um tennis events where the men and women are at the same place it can't be like that in every single event because there's not enough venues worldwide that have got enough courts and enough spectator seating to have men's and women's at, at the same place. But the, also the fact that tennis has had Venus and Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova as three of the biggest sporting superstars, but they're also tennis players. But they are known globally, not just for their tennis. They're known globally because they're attached to some of the biggest brands in the world. And that goes back to what, what you were saying about this, when the performance is good enough and the profiles get grown, 
he get bums on seats, he gets eyes on screens, and that's when brands want to get behind you, whether it's you as a person or whether it's your event or whether it's your sport in general. And But there are hardly any sports that are in the same position as tennis is with that visibility. And it all comes down to the, if you can see it, you can be it. If you can't see it, you can't be it. But if you can't see it, you're unlikely to sponsor it. And you're right about everything comes down to money in the end. Money creates the resources that create the opportunities that create the athletes or the players. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've I think women's sport pre-COVID was in the best position that it had ever been in. And unfortunately, it's taken a, a, a big step backwards because of COVID. And that's why it's really important that series like Driving Force continue while things are not so visible to actually yeah. promote what needs to happen uh, for women's sport to to grow. And we all have to keep our foot on the gas. We've all got to use our voices and we've all got to stick together to ensure that we don't lose that momentum that we built up because COVID has knocked everything back. And you just have to look through, through COVID at all the things where the men's side of the sport has been able to continue and the, the women's has stopped like the Six Nations Rugby, for example, like the, the training academies at the Premier League clubs that the boys were allowed to continue and the girls was was stopped. It's it's like things like that that go on all the time. These are the things that we have to we have to fight really hard to make sure that we that we God, keep them going. It's mad, isn't it? I didn't know that. That should, that should just be illegal. It should be outlawed. If the boys <laughs> stop, the girls stop. Uh, if the girls stop, the boys stop. If the boys carry, the girls carry. That should just be it. That should be a blanket rule. That's just got to happen, hasn't it? Yeah, and, and that's where it comes back to equality of opportunity and that it shouldn't just be about, well, men's sport is important and women's isn't. And that's why we need more male advocacy and many more women with a voice at the top table. Yeah, no, it's, it's just got to, thank God for Billie Jean King. I mean, I knew she was amazing. Didn't quite realise she, she was so amazing to set your sport on such an equal footing with regards to men and women and be an example to all the other sports in the world. I didn't realise she was responsible for all that. Yeah, that's why tennis is where it is today. But that was 50 wow. years ago that they that they started that. And she absolutely went out on a limb. And remember when she did Battle of the Sexes in 1973, that was, that was again, her putting her neck on the line to say women's tennis is top level and it's watchable and I can beat you, Bob. She played against this guy called Bobby Riggs, who was a bit of a big mouth, but you know, a, a, a really good, a really good tennis player. But if she had yeah. lost that, it would have knocked everything back. And she knew that, and she was willing to take it on. It was um, no, she's amazing. She's my absolute shero. <laughs> well, and also thank God for big mouth Bobby Biggs, because without him saying yes to that, none of this would have gone on. So God yeah, bless him right. too, in a way. That's the visibility again. It's the you know it, it it was something that created a massive amount of profile and talking points. And because Billie Jean won, it it put a lot of more you know power to her elbow and power to um, women's sport or women's tennis in particular. Because you're such a champion, Judy. You're such a champion of the human race. You know, and of your boys. And you know. You know, of of, of female equality, just of fairness and firmness. Um, okay, let's just finish off with where the heck did this kid come from? All right, let's talk about your mum and her playing tennis. You know, tennis had only just been invented when your mum started playing, hadn't it? 
<laughs> well, she certainly taught me with a wooden racket. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, I was lucky that my mum and dad were both very sporty. Um, and uh, I started playing tennis when I was 10. And back then, because it was wooden rackets and full-size tennis courts, and the tennis balls were quite hard in those days, mm-hmm. you really had to be about 10 or 11, because otherwise the, the court was too big, the racket was too heavy, and, and, and it was very difficult to control either the racket or the ball. So... I was often with my brothers, you know, at the side of the the court or on the grass beside the courts at the tennis club, watching my mum and dad playing on a Sunday. Um, so I was, um, and, and our tennis club, you know, it was just a, a little local club, very community club, lots of trees to climb around it, lots of hide and seek places and all the rest of it. So we were happy just hanging around there. But that that was my introduction to tennis. I mean, in those days, there was no ten, no such thing as tennis coaching. So I was lucky my mum and dad were able to teach me how to play. And as I got better at it then I was able to play with the other kids at the club the older kids and then with the adults at the club so I learned to play the game by playing the game not by being coached how to hit the ball and that has also that also formed me when I became a volunteer at the local club many years later when Andy and Jamie were toddlers I taught the kids at the club how to play the game I taught them how to tactically how to make the opponent run, how to play drop shots, and then you make them run forward and then you send them back again, how to hit to the spaces, how to work out, you know, if this is the shape of their shot, you know, they start with the racket high, then they're not going to like a low ball. How do you get the ball low? You have to learn to slice it. Here's how you slice it. And I would just show them and they would copy rather than being some kind of technical or biomechanical (laughs) guru. So I, I, I taught them how to play the game which was the way that I had learned. And I still go to that first. What is the game going to demand of you? What are you going to have to be able to do? How do you make it difficult for opponent? Because at the end of the day, it's a sport and sport is about competing. When did you first beat your mum? I beat my mum. The only time I played singles against my mum, I was actually 14 and we were on holiday. We used to go up to Elgin, which is in the north of Scotland. It was a, a tennis, a holiday tennis tournament up there. So the whole family could could play in it you know with all these handicap events and junior events and so forth and my mum at the time was the north of Scotland county captain she didn't really play singles very much she played a lot of doubles but she entered the singles at Elgin and I came up against her in the second round and I was beating her six love five love and we changed ends and she shoulder charged me as we as we changed ends which is very unlike my mum who's the most sporting person in the world (laughs) And and she, <laughs> yeah, hidden it. Well, but, you say so that she, she kind of bumped into me, and she said, "If you don't give me a game, I will never speak to you again." And I was terrified because that's not like my mum to to say anything like that, um, or be you know like even be remotely threatening. And I lost the next four games in terror, and then and then my competitive instincts kicked in, and I thought, "Now that's enough. I need, I need to finish her off now." But then that's when I remember, and she never played singles ever after that. <laughs> but yeah, I was about 14. All right, okay. What about, what about this? When was the first time Jamie beat you and Andy beat you? I think that, uh, I think they were probably about 12, 13. Uh, I think um, up to up to that point, I was still playing tennis at a, a pretty good level and I was still 
pretty fit. Um, but I think I think it would have been a roundabout then. And but I have to say that when I played tennis with them when they were young, I, I it was it was the same with them. My teaching philosophy: you make it fun, uh, you develop the skills, and then when you're playing the game, you have to make it difficult for your opponents. So when I played against them. I was always trying to make it difficult for them. So if I drop shotted them and let's say I drop shotted Jamie and Jamie runs forward and then I lob him and he runs back. And by the time he picks the lob up and he's in the back fence, I'm standing at the net and I can put the volley away easily because he's miles off the court. And then I can say to him, does I make that difficult for you there? Yep. How? What did I do? Well, you made me run forward for the drop shot and then you sent me back again. And I went, and then what? He said, and then you came up to the net. You were just waiting for it there, whatever. And then, <laughs> but then they copy you because they realize you've yes. made it difficult for them and they can make it difficult for yeah. you in the same way. And that's why wow. they became very tactically aware at a very young age because I taught them how to play the game. And that's probably what also, as well as obviously having great coordination skills, that's probably why they became very good competitors at a, at a young age because they understood the game and nowadays I see far too much coaching far too much how to hit the ball you know doing endless drills and nowhere near enough on the mentality and the tactic the tactics of playing the game and that's why we don't have enough yeah. competitors and winners it's too much spoon feeding and far too much coaching when t tennis is probably the most cerebral sport of all you know every surface is different every conditions you know one day it's sunny one day it's windy um Every opponent is different, left-handed, right-handed, different ages, different playing styles. You've got to work it out. So you have to develop thinking players. And I think the the volume of coaching that goes on nowadays does not lead to thinking players. And that's probably why we don't have as many winners or champions in this country as we could have. Yeah, and there's many variations at the top of the game uh, per se, um, you know, as a whole. Golf is not dissimilar, is it? Because, you know, the, you, you can, you can the PGA Tour, the USPGA Tour, different to the European Tour, um, can, you know, uh, when Darren Clark won the Open, you know, had it not been the conditions it was at Royal St. George's, he would never have won his first Open, probably because he was used to playing that kind of golf in Ireland when he was brought up as a kid. You know, and, and like you say, you can grind out a win, you, you can... You can um, you can sort of uh, beat your opponent in submission via attrition and strength and stamina, but you can think a win, you know, and, and that's, that's so important. Do you remember the first time that Andy beat Jamie? Yeah, I do, because it was torture. Um, we were in Solihull, which is just outside Birmingham, and I had taken a minibus full of kids from Scotland down for a week to this this tournament. Wonderful, wonderful tournament with everything from under 10 to under 21. So I had a huge age range of, of kids uh, in, in my care and I was driving the minibus as well. And Andy and Jamie played each other in the under 10s final. And I think they were something like eight, eight and nine, I think. And I didn't watch because it's just better not to <laughs> and uh, I remember um, Andy won and it was the first time that he'd beaten Jamie in a in a competition and then I had to drive the minibus back we were leaving that day to, to go back up so we're on the motorway and they Andy starts you know bragging about how he's beaten um, Jamie and Jamie's in the the seat behind him and Andy turned around and he had his hand on the metal rail on the top of the the seat 
and uh, Jamie just took his fist and and smacked him on the on the hand and broke his nail blood everywhere all the kids are going oh no and Andy's crying Jamie's upset because he's hurt Andy I have to stop the minibus on the motorway I have to get the first aid kit out um, you know kind of bandage it up separate them uh, get on with driving all these 16 kids I think I had in the minibus driving them back up to to Scotland and when we got um, home well, certainly the next morning, Andy's um, nail was hanging off and it was all pussy. And so I had to take him to the doctor, get a tetanus shot and had to explain to the doctor what happened and all the rest of it. But it was such a good lesson for do not brag about winning and do not brag. Um, don't, don't put your brother down, all, all this kind of stuff. And never did it again, never did it again. And it always, <laughs> but, but that is funny, the things that you remember, because I remember that oh, more of, of don't brag. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you're beating somebody, yeah. you don't rub it in. Um, but anyway, yeah, that, that was when he first beat him. That's, that's not to say Jamie didn't ever beat him after that, because he did many times, but that was, that was them at a young, <laughs> very young age and torture for me. Blimey, O'Reilly. <laughs> Judy, you know, Solihull's not around the corner from Scotland, is no, it? No, that was a good five-hour, five-and-a-half-hour drive Gee, in a minibus. <laughs> Every story you tell, it's quite evident, you know, with no disrespect to Jamie and Andy at all, you're the champion here every every day of every week. Uh, not that you'd be the first to say it, you'd probably be the last to say it if you ever said it at all. But unbelievable stories. Judy, I can't believe it's 13 years since Jamie's first Wimbledon title, and I actually can't believe... Even more that it's that it's seven years since Andy won Wimbledon. I I keep thinking it's like a couple of years ago, and he's you know he has had a few injury things and a bit of treatment. And he'll be back in a bit. My goodness me, time flies. How's it for you? It really does fly. You're right. I think when when Jamie won in two thousand and seven in the mixed doubles. I mean that was it was such a surprise, completely unexpected. You know because. He wasn't even thinking about entering the mixed doubles and he bumped into Yelena Yankovic at the courtesy car check-in where they were getting their bags checked and struck up a conversation and decided to play in the mixed doubles. And 10 days later, they were in the final on the centre court. And, you know, and I was sitting in the player box wetting myself. And at 5-1 in the third set, I was think, I was sitting there talking to myself, which is not unusual for me in player boxes. And I'm going, Jamie's going to win Wimbledon. Jamie's going to win Wimbledon. I was trying to convince myself that they were really... 5-1 up, you, know, you usually don't lose from 5-1 up in the third set. And it was just, he was only 21 and it was just, it was the most incredible thing. And then, you know, 10 years later, he won it again with uh, Martina Hingis. Now, who would ever have believed that Martina Hingis is one of my idols? I love the way she she plays tennis because she's such a smart, clever player. And I'm going, Jamie is playing mixed doubles with Martina Hingis. She's one of the all-time greats. And these are the things that you still have to pinch yourself a bit that you've become part of a world of people that you used to admire as a, you know, as a young tennis player. I mean, Billie Jean is is a good friend of mine now, and I've worked with her a number of times. And I still have to sit, you know, when I do a panel thing with her and we're just chattering away, sharing stories. And I still go, I can't believe it. That's Billie Jean King that I used to watch on black and white TV when Wimbledon was on. Never would have dreamed I would meet her, nevertheless become a friend of hers. But yeah, it's um, our world's kind of turned upside down, but it does, it goes so fast and you recognise it 
how fast it goes much more um, as you get older. I think when you're young, you don't feel it so much, but I certainly feel it um, now. And that's why it's even more important than ever to make every day count. And what's it like having a little boy? And they'll both always be your little boys, even though they're big, huge, fantastic men. Um, What's it like having one of your little boys called Sir Andy? What does that feel like as a mum? <laughs> I never think about that, you know, to, to be honest. I think sometimes I read things about him and somebody's called him Sir Andy. But, you know, he, he'll always just be Andy to, to me and, and, and to the rest of the family and to himself um, as well. But it is, it's, it's just another one of those, you know. <laughs> it's so funny, it isn't is, it? It's really strange. It's, it's, it's... I love it. I love it. Do, does anything ever keep you awake at night, Judy? Not, not really. Not, not really. I think I used to. I had many, many years of sleepless nights when I was worrying over um, money. You know, when the when the boys were in the early parts of their career, and how were you going to be able to afford to pay for things? And I, I used to have a lot of a lot of that. Probably about three years of that. And you know, there was a time when I borrowed. Thirty thousand pounds, and I was terrified that I, I hate owing money. Anyway, um, I'm one of these people. As soon as I get a bill in, I pay it immediately. Can't don't really have credit cards. I prefer debit cards. I know exactly where I am. But you know, I borrowed this money um, to help to pay for uh, mainly for Andy when he was when he was training in Spain, and just this fear of never being able to pay that back, um, and and that. I had a lot of sleepless nights over over that, and as soon as I was able to pay it back, you know, once he started to win, it, you know, and once I'd done that, that took a lot of pressure off me. But I, I'd say financial stress um, would be the thing now. I, I don't have it now, thankfully, but that would definitely be something that has kept me awake many times over the years. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I hear a lot of um, stories from people who have in- improved their lives, you know, um, beyond their wildest dreams, and it began with paying off their debts, just get ridding of, get getting rid of that dull grey weight of debt and, and insecurity. Yeah, I think that's um, you're responsible for yourself, and you're not owing to anybody else. It's not something that's just hanging over you, and you feel like you can't really move forward until you've got rid of that so yeah i think that's a that's a big thing for many people right you um you are obviously bonkers as most brilliant people are in fact all brilliant people are bonkers um you're so bonkers that your favorite thing to do to relax is to swim but your greatest fear is drowning what the heck's that about (laughs) that is absolutely true i have this terrible fear of drowning and it came from when i was at school you know i used to i was in the swimming team at school i was even in the diving team at school but there was a a lesson or a couple of lessons at school where we had to go under the water to pick up one of these rubber coated bricks and i could never open my eyes under the water I, I, i just found it really sore on my eyes and I remember grappling around in the deep end of the pool, trying to get this rubber brick and not being able to get it. And my PE teacher making me go down and keep going, keep going down, keep going down to get this brick. And the terror of it, of don't come up until you've got that brick and not being able to feel it. And I've never really recovered from that. And I think it, I have a fear of the dentist as well. And that came from a bad experience as a 10-year-old. As a and, and that's made me really aware of, I think when I'm, 
coaching and also from parenting, you realize how much of your hard wiring is done through big events in your childhood. Because yeah. I, I can't get away from that drowning thing. So although I love swimming, I never put my head under the water, ever. So... Yeah, and it is, it's a funny thing because when I get asked about those two things, I always say that, yeah, my fear is drowning. It's like when I drive across a bridge, I'm absolutely rigid and don't speak to me if you're in the car with me until I get to the other side of this bridge. Got terrible fear of that car going into the water and not being able to get out. So The irony continues because you say here, aside from property, um, what's the most expensive thing you've bought? Getting your teeth done. Uh, getting them um, <laughs> veneered and it took 18 months for a woman who has a fear of the dentist. I, I know. That was a massive, massive thing for me because it was so much taking me out of my comfort zone to go and do that. Mm. But I wanted to be able to smile more in public. You know, I was like getting slammed all the time for, you know, I'm so serious. I'm never smile. I never whatever, whatever. And I thought, right, I need to be more confident with my smile. So because of my fear of the dentist, mm -hmm. which came from a, a young girl, I never wanted to go to the dentist. And, you know, so my teeth were in not good shape. So I really invested myself for 18 months in, in getting my teeth veneered. And it was, yes, it was expensive. It was time consuming. It was terrifying. My dentist said to me, he'd never seen such a nervous patient. <laughs> and he kept saying to me, what about hypnotherapy? What about, would you like me to put me to sleep? No, you're not putting me to sleep. I want to kind of know what's going on. But coming out the other side of that, you get a huge confidence, don't you, when you go out of your comfort zone and you put yourself mm -hmm. through something really stressful and difficult. And I was really proud of myself to get through that because I would sit in that dentist chair and be visibly shaking the entire way through the 18 months of, of, of treatment. So, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Fear of the dentist, but yeah, that's the one of the biggest things that I did was get my teeth done. Yeah, but you yeah. you always go over the deep end because fear of the dance floor, you know, and fear of the spotlight, really, Judy. So so you you volunteered for Strictly 2014, um, and I loved you on Strictly. I thought you're amazing. I thought you and Anton had a whale of a time. I know you your lifelong friends since then. But you know this this eye for talent that you have, um, you know, it's it's so precocious because. Didn't you spot the winners of this year's Strictly three, four, five weeks in? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, well, I, obviously I didn't know they were going to, to win. I was tipping them to win it because I always tend to be more interested in the dancers, the celeb dancers who are more my kind of age. Mm -hmm. I think it's just uh, I can identify better with, <laughs> with them. And I, when I watched um, Bill and Oti, I thought, yeah, look, they're having a great time. There's a chemistry there right. and he's actually really good. And I just thought I've got just got a feeling that they're going to win it. Right. So it's a chemistry thing. That's so interesting. Um, before we finish, uh, you say here, who would you invite to your dream dinner party? George Clooney. Um, but your biggest secret is you have a massive crush on Jimmy Nail. So why would you invite George <laughs> Clooney to your dinner party when actually you fancy the pants off Jimmy Nail? I don't get that. Uh, yeah, well, I think um, the 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 having a crush on Jimmy Neal that was that came from a question that was tell us something unusual about yourself, right? And I think that Jimmy Neal's probably not somebody that many people would have a crush on, but George Clooney, millions of women will have a crush on George Clooney, and that was why I came up with Jimmy Neal because I've got all Jimmy Neal's albums as well. Absolutely love his his um singing and it, all the, the the things that attach to his uh geordie upbringing and 
the tyne and the shipyards and everything. But yeah, I loved him on Alfieder's Zane Pet, but yeah, Jimmy Nail, crush, strange crush. All right, so, so, <laughs> so here's the question, Jimmy Nail or George Clooney? Oh, gosh, interesting. George Clooney. <laughs> Poor old Jimmy, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah. Judy, you know, we've had a, an amazing conversation, but you're as shallow as the worst of them. <laughs> I absolutely am, no question. <laughs> you could share your moisturiser with George. Uh, yeah, I could share my moisturiser <laughs> as long as he doesn't take me swimming. <laughs> um, just just briefly on swimming before we finish again, a family holiday uh, in Mallorca was your earliest memory. rather, was your earliest memory. Uh, you had a sailor swimsuit with a little white uh, pleated skirt, and your brother Keith had leopard trunks. Does <laughs> Keith still have the leopard trunks? And is Keith the one who's just come back from America, or is he the optician? Keith's the one who came back from America. He's a he's right. a golf pro. Golfer. Yeah. Golf golf pro. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but yeah, yeah those uh, leopard skin trunks. We've got many photos of of him with those on. He absolutely loved it because he did the whole Tarzan thing you know beat, beat his chest and then jumped in the water um yeah yeah, yeah great memories lovely and the the museum you referred to in Dunblane earlier on uh, was that the museum your dad volunteered at that's right yeah he doesn't anymore he's uh he's he's got a little bit past that but for many many years he did a, a couple of mornings or afternoons um a week it's only open through the summer season but he's a real collector of local history um, and coastal history in particular so he absolutely loved volunteering it's, it's all staffed by volunteers and it is it was refurbed a, a few years ago with a grant from the Scottish government and it's really the most remarkable little museum uh, right beside the cathedral and it's it's fabulous um, Judy, thanks so much for your time. Uh, it's been a real honour to, to to be able to share this conversation with you. I've learned so much. I knew I would, and I, you've already taught me so much anyway. In the, the few times we've met before, let's let's keep that date for the killers. Let's drive o- over no bridges on the way there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and as you, as, as you enter your seventh decade, right? And I'm trying to catch up. But I promise I'm in my sixth. Um, you, you still have <laughs> what seems like such irrepressible effervescent energy. Um, your boys may or may not have reached the zenith of their professional competitive careers in the world of tennis. What do you want for yourself now? What do you want for your boys now, um, for your elders, for your grandkids? Uh, and just leave us with, with I don't know, a Judy Murray perspective on where we are now, the beginning of 2021, where you are now. Um, I don't know. Give, give us a bit of gold to finish with, Judy. Oh, I think, I mean, for, I think for my kids, I, I just want them, like everybody does, you want them to be happy and, and healthy. Um, same, obviously, for my, my grandkids and my daughters-in-law as well. I think um, for me, my final piece of my jigsaw is the building of a um, tennis centre uh, just outside of Dunblane, which I'm hoping to press the button on within the next month or so. And that will, it's been seven years in the planning. It's been full of obstacles, as you can imagine. Um, but uh, that will give me a base to work out of, which is what I've been wanting for a long time. Um, I've spent the last seven years trying to develop grassroots tennis in Scotland and driving around the country in a, in a minivan full of equipment and working with some other coaches to try and teach people how to get others started in tennis by teaching people to teach it in whatever space they have available in rural and disadvantaged areas of Scotland. So really opening the game up. But I can do a lot more if I have a base to work out of. And, um, 
you know, one of the it's a, a pay and play community facility which feeds into everything that I believe in about community sport and making it accessible and affordable to everybody. And uh, that as part of it, we have indoor and outdoor courts and that we will create a, a workforce development centre for tennis in Scotland that can develop, you know, coaches, trainers, administrators, offici officials, umpires, referees, etc., etc. Because if you invest in people and you grow people through passion and great teaching and sense of belonging to something, then uh, you keep your sport in good hands for the long term. So that's my absolute last project before I retire to become a full-time <laughs> granny. <laughs> good for you. And again, you know, greatness uh, begins and ends in a van. You're back to driving the van again. <laughs> yeah, seven years I've been driving that. I've been a white van woman, van. that's what they call me, white van woman. <laughs> Well, Judy, I think you're awesome. Um, and if there's anything we can ever do to help your cause, because or any any of your causes, because they're all they're all amazingly worthwhile, and they always have been, they always will be. Just you know where we are. Thank thanks again. Thanks for your time. No, great to talk to you as always. And uh, yeah, killers, no bridges. I'm on that. <laughs> I will be on your case with that. <laughs> okay, they better be ready for us, Judy, because because when we can party again, oh boy, are we going to go for it? Oh, we sure are. Yeah, we are. Judy Murray, thanks very much. Lots of love. Bye bye. Bye. Wow, how amazing is that woman, Judy Murray? What a fantastic example of how to live your life, how to go about your business, how to be a mum, how to be a champion, how to be a force for everything good in the world you know and inhabit and, and are passionate for, how to, to, to knock on doors and break down walls. She, she is as good as it gets. Judy Murray, How to Wow. If you've enjoyed this episode, uh, well, if you haven't, good luck with the rest of your life. But if you have, uh, please do subscribe, rate and review. Okay, ta-da. <laughs>